Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today is South African-born Australian businesswoman, Gail Kelly. She was the first female CEO of a major Australian bank, the highest paid woman in an Australian corporation, and in 2010, Forbes named her the eighth most powerful woman in the world, one place above Beyonce. Gail, how did it feel to come in above Beyonce on the top 10 most powerful women in the world list? Where else would we start except there? Oh, hello, Julia. It's such a delight to to be here with you today. I must tell you that list gave my family a lot of merriment. My young daughters in particular, who thought this was absolutely hilarious, because on that list, as you mentioned, Beyonce was one behind me, one ahead of me, I think was Lady Gaga. (laughs) And uh, then there was Hillary Clinton. And you kind of think, you know, what sort of list is this with politicians and commercial people and entertainers? And then somehow in there is an Australian banker. So it was at least a cause for great merriment in the family and still is, actually. I think it's a fantastic story. You'll be able to take that with you the day that I beat Beyonce. It's a good one. (laughs) I want now to take you back to the beginning, though, well before the Forbes list. And to the time you were growing up in 1960s South Africa, our listeners would, of course, be familiar with the epic struggle against apartheid. What are your memories of that as a young girl? You were eight years old when Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life imprisonment. Do you remember that moment? I don't, actually, Julia. I don't remember. As you say, 1964, eight years old. But what I do remember are all of the symbols and signs of the of the apartheid era that we lived in. So I remember very distinctly feeling quite uncomfortable, but also in a way bemused or, or, or surprised or not quite explain, understanding you know, why it is that in parks you had benches that said whites only and shops had separate entrances for blacks and whites and even within shops, separate counters for blacks and whites. I remember very clearly you know, going to our regular summer holidays. We went down to the beach in the Eastern Cape in our caravan with our dogs and had a beautiful spot in, in the park just on the beach there. And these amazing beaches, just like Australia, white sandy beaches stretching miles and miles and none of those beaches being available for, for black people at all. Only one day of the year, which was New Year's Day. And so on New Year's Day, the beaches were filled with black people from all the surrounding areas. And of course, we didn't go on that day. So that's a kind of very stark memory for me. It was, as you know, a very controlling system. And so with that came significant propaganda. And with that came a control of the media, even history books and textbooks and school books were rewritten to reflect the history as as the policymakers wanted it to be reflected. The church was an organ for the state, particularly the Dutch Reformed Church, where it it was proclaimed that this was God's will, God's wish, God's way of seeing the world, that white people were superior to black people, and this was the right order of things. So that was the framework 
in which we all all lived. So when it came to Mandela and he went to prison in 1964, we were never able to hear his voice, read anything about him, read any of his speeches, any of his quotes, him or anyone from the ANC or the ANC as a body itself until the, the day he came out, which was in 1991. And I remember quite distinctly when I was at university in 1986 in Johannesburg doing my MBA, and we, we literally locked the auditorium, a group of our students, because we knew this was illegal, and watched a video, one of those old grainy type videos of the history of the ANC and of Mandela through that period and the Ravonia trials and going to prison and the subsequent years. And feeling quite threatened and quite fearful because if you'd been caught doing that, it was extremely serious. So that was the kind of era we grew up in. It's quite scary to reflect on it now. Yeah, what an incredible set of memories. I do want to take a different lens, though, to look back at your childhood. How gendered do you remember it? When was the first moment that you said to yourself, gee, I'm treated differently than I would be if I was a boy? You know, I've always been aware of boys and girls or men and women being treated differently. And I think probably it starts with my mum, because my mum was a feminist. Uh, she we may not have called herself a feminist, but she was absolutely a feminist and followed the movement in those days all the way through. She was someone who was the fourth girl in, out of four girls in a family that grew up through the Depression years and uh, and, and she, unfortunately, was pulled out of her schooling when she was 13 years old. Her father had a view that she didn't need any more education than that because she was a girl, after all, and she was going to be running a home and, and, and do the sorts of things that women do in that era. And my mum had an immense sense of, of a potential that she had yet to fulfill. So she taught herself a lot. She was a deep reader. She loved books. She wrote beautifully. She was really not interested in the more domestic side of of what womanhood involved. She left that to her sisters and her mother. She was desperate to work. She signed up to be a nurse in the Second World War. Then she became a, a typist and a shorthand typist. But of course, when she got married and had children, my father, lovely man as he was, came from a traditional background and the role of a wife and a mother was to be at home with her children. So she felt frustrated and she was really determined that I, as a young girl, would have opportunities that she'd not had and would be in a position to make the most of them. So that was a, a really strong flavour for me all the way through my early years. So did that mean that there were kind of differential impacts on you, your mother obviously wanting to inculcate a culture of aiming high and achievement, but was your father or indeed outside influences, your school, your circle of friends, sending a message that, no, there's a pathway for girls and it's about getting married and having kids and that's where your aspiration should be? Definitely not my father. Although he may have been conservative in his values and the way in which he sort of saw families should grow and develop, he wanted the absolute best for both my brother and I. So I have an older brother who's two years older than I and he made sure I had the very best of educations. Now, he used to tell me to shoot for the stars. I, I was very fond of my father who passed away, unfortunately, quite early on in life, my life. He taught me to be the best that I can be. Those were the years, as you remember, of man landing on the moon. And he would say to me, you could be an astronaut, you could be an, an engineer, an auto, auto engineer, you could, you could do anything. He wanted the best education for me and encouraged me to be the best that I can be. 
from a schooling point of view, I went to an all-girls school that really encouraged the development of girls and, girl, and was very focused on girls' education. But in society more broadly, there was this obvious notion and idea that, you know, education was fine, but it only would take you so far. If you went to university at all, and most girls didn't, but if you went there at all, there was that kind of joke you were going to find a husband. There was a subliminal sense of it. I mean, at school, we couldn't play soccer. For example, we didn't have athletics at school, nor cricket, obviously. So we, we played netball and, and we did swimming. There was that kind of, of inbuilt difference system that you grew up with. Now, people thinking about you growing up might easily assume that you were always driven by mathematics and numbers and that led you to accounting and that led you to banking. That would be a, an easy to understand set of assumptions about you. But you actually studied history and Latin and teaching at university, and then you went teaching. What made you choose those subjects, and what did you have in mind for your career being a teacher? Education's deep in me, like I know it is in you as well. It's love of language and the love of learning and the richness that that brings to your life. So I'm so glad I did. But probably the reason I did was the excellent school I went to lucky enough to go to an independent school. It was actually a nun's school, not that we were particularly religious, but it was a nun's school. And it had an independent flavour about it. And so we weren't subject to the same types of educational and curriculum rigour and bias that uh, that I've outlined earlier in my conversation about uh, how the state controlled what you learned and, and what you saw and what you heard. So I was taught at the school to think for myself. I was taught to explore ideas. I was taught to debate ideas. I, I love the richness that history gives us, and it teaches you a lot about people and a lot about motivations, a lot about society and ideologies. That, together with my excellent teaching background, gave me a sense of, I'd like to be a teacher. I'd like to actually be someone who can do the same for young, young girls and boys coming through the system. For many of my school years, I thought I wanted to be a teacher too because I like school and so many of the teachers were just incredible. So I can well and truly understand that. When you did graduate, though, and you went teaching, did you find students with the same love of Latin as you or did you find classrooms full of kids who were like, oh, miss, do we really have to study this now? <laughs> well, my, my teaching career has two parts. So part one, I was at a, a magnificent school called Falcon College in what was then Rhodesia. It was a bush school. So we all were boarding. We all lived on campus, on the school, all the, all the pupils and all the teachers. And so it was a community. And, uh, you know, I pride myself to say I was the head of the Latin department, which, of course, means I was the only Latin teacher. But what it did mean was that I had the very bright boys in my class and smaller, smaller groups in my class. And so I taught O-level, A-level, M-level Latin. So we were part of the whole system that, you know, connects to, to England. And it was a fabulous sort of teaching environment with small classes and boys who wanted to be there in the class learning, learning the language. This was also wartime. It was during that war of independence. And so it was quite a serious-minded time. And boys took education seriously. Life was a serious thing. Hardly a week went by when we didn't have news of a father or a brother who had either been injured or, or killed in the conflict. So it was a serious-minded time but a rich time for me as a young teacher. So I loved that. And the boys I taught were wanting to be there for whatever reason they were wanting to be in the class, and, and we did well. My husband and I came back to South Africa. We went to live in Johannesburg. Alan decided to start in a second degree and do medicine. And so I needed to be a teacher. I was a married woman. 
Uh, I couldn't find a job in, in any um, school that offered Latin. I landed up taking a public sector or, or government school role. I landed up being appointed to teach a particular subject and landed up teaching history and English and other things that I, I didn't want to teach. And I was completely out of my depth and out of my out of my field of competence and uh, became thoroughly miserable and thoroughly unhappy and, and lost my sense of, of joy, lost my sense of what teaching was about, started to undermine my confidence in my ability to do this. That led to me ultimately leaving teaching. And the change you made was to becoming a bank teller. Was it love at first sight, the banking industry? Did you think this is for me? You know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, that's the reality. I remember sitting on on the bed in my family home, my mum and dad's home, and, uh, you know, doing one of these woe is me conversations with them and saying, I don't know, I'm not trained for anything. You know, I've got a a degree in history and Latin. And by then I'd actually signed up to do a master's in, in ancient Greek. Can you believe it? Anyway, I never finished that. But, you know, what am I trained for? And, you know, my mother in her pragmatic fashion said, oh, for goodness sake, Gail, snap out of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this wallowing in your self-pity is a complete nonsense. And my father kind of immediately set about saying, right, let's think about the future and the opportunities and the next step and what should you do and so on. And he was a real estate agent and he worked in the property world and uh, he was an agent for one of the, the banks at the time. And so he said, why don't I call up a, a friend of mine at the bank and see where there's an opportunity for you to uh, perhaps learn in that industry. So lo and behold, I arrived for an interview. They didn't quite know what to do with me. Having a Latin that was not the normal classic Hari, I think they took him on because, out of respect for my father. And I remember the gentleman saying to me, well, I'm not sure what we're going to do with you, you know, Latin graduate. In fact, I think they saw trouble. You know, this is not someone that we really want. This is going to be trouble. But they took me on board and he said, you know, you might get to be a supervisor one day. <laughs> but then I actually really did enjoy it. I started as a teller and I really enjoyed the people contact and the opportunity to make a difference to people's lives in the very front line. Those were the days where bank branches were all in businesses. It's only afterwards that you sort of strip the branches bare to really being effectively just frontline people. In those days, you had an accounting department and an administrative department, and they were really all in businesses. So I had the opportunity to progress from there to some of the other functions. But I never lost my love for the front end, that daily interaction and engagement with customers, and always felt that banks completely underestimated the power of that frontline role that you play. You are the face of the business, the brand of the business. You provide the service delivery of the business, the care of the business. And so that was something that profound that stayed with me all the way through my banking career. And it sounds like you were good at it almost immediately. You were being promoted to more senior positions. You decided to undertake an MBA. You were married, of course, and you combined all of this work and study with having your daughter and then you had triplets. How <laughs> on earth did you manage that? It, do, it feels hard to believe when you say that. And actually, when I think about it, it is hard to believe. And <laughs> A lot of things went right. Let me put it that way. A lot of things went right. I did love what what I do. There's no question about that. And I, and I had a fabulous bank. This was Nedbank that I worked for, a bank that was well ahead of its time, to be honest, and well ahead of its time in the way in which it treated people with potential and, uh, and, and supported me through that period. I fronted up and said, I'd like to do an MBA. And they said, absolutely, we'll give you a year off to do a full-time MBA and will support your, your superannuation over that period. 
and we'll help you so that you don't fall behind on your mortgage. So we'll make provision that there's no impact for you as it relates to your mortgage. But you go for it. Then I felt pregnant with my oldest daughter, Sharon, along the way. And I thought, oh, goodness me, because they, they kept for me a fabulous job. I was now going to be a, a branch manager. And as I mentioned in those days, that was a big deal job in a new suburb called Santon that you may have heard of that was just opening up in Johannesburg. So a brand new suburb, big area. I was going to be branch manager. They were holding that job for me. And then I arrived after Sharon was born. I felt, well, actually, this is not what I want to do at all. I, I had a complete moment of realization that what I wanted to do was spend time with my daughter, that this was the most important thing that had happened in my life. So I headed off to the the, the head of the, the business unit and said, um, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to do this. And he said, you know, Gail, I've got four daughters. I anticipated you'd come and say this. Don't you worry. We really don't want to lose you. Let's design something that's going to work for you and for us. And so I took on a part-time role, which over time, over a few years, became from five hours to more. I then decided I needed to tackle a full-time career back again. And then I fell pregnant out of the blue, not just with one, but with three. Then fronted up and said, look, I'm going to have to resign because I just have to focus on this very important task right in front of me that only I can do. And they said, no, no, of course, we understand, we understand. But then within a few a few months, they rang me and said, we've got this fabulous opportunity to be the general manager of human resources for one of our line businesses. And we'd love to offer it to you or at least put you in the mix for the role. And, you know, please, what would you think about that? I thought they were crazy, you know, just crazy to be offering me that. The babies were crying in the background. And so when I went for the interviews, I took two of the babies with me. They were five months old. And I gave one to the PA outside and I took one in with me to the interview. Now, I was interviewing with someone I knew, but nevertheless, I took the baby in with me. I chose the best of the three in terms of the one that I thought, you know, is least likely to cry. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, said, you know, just so they would know. this is, And they said, no, no, we, we get it. We get it. This is in, in 1989. And look, if you take the role, you design it in a way that you think is going to work best for you. So how you know, liberating was that? And so I, I took the role when the babies were a year old. Uh, went in, one of the first decisions, they were looking to build a gym in the sort of campus out in the western part of Johannesburg. And I said, no, 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 no. we need a creche. So they looked at me and they thought, yep, okay, we need a creche. So we built a creche. And so that that was an amazingly forward-looking organization, to be honest, way ahead of its time. And that creche became multiple creches all the way around our various campuses in the country. We became an absolute leader with regard to supporting women in the workplace through a variety of ways, flexible work, pressures, childcare, way ahead of their time. So that was one factor for me that really in those early years enabled me. Another, of course, is my husband. You need a partner in life. And, and Alan, more than 50% shared the responsibilities of home, of our administration at home, of caring for, for the kids. Mums used to ring the home and I would answer the phone and they'd say, oh, hi, Gail, uh, can I please speak to Alan? Because Alan knew which child was doing what, which child was was where. And Alan ran the lift club processes and he was the one who fetched and carried and did that kind of stuff. He was the one who prepared sandwiches in the mornings for the kids. He never once in all of these years has said to me, where were you? We needed you. Why didn't you call? Never once because he knew I was doing the best I could and he trusted me to do the best I could. And uh, so those are some of the things that helped me. 
It's a remarkable story because I'm sure there would be many women listening to this who would think 30 years later that the businesses that they're employed by wouldn't be as good as that in terms of facilitating their career and its balance with family life. And perhaps they'd also be thinking that their domestic arrangements aren't as good as that. And we know from all sorts of studies and surveys that disproportionately it's women who undertake domestic labour, caring labour, and that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. It, it really is just incredible that uh, so long ago you hit all of those things. Was there something very particular about the business that you worked for that drove that very forward-looking culture? Because if there was, we should be bottling it and distributing it now. Not many people have asked me that question, actually, Julia. It's a very interesting question. And, and sort of to get into the detail of that question, when I joined the, the bank, I actually joined the Building Society, which was called the South African Permanent Building Society. That building society was taken over by Nedbank later on. But I started out in the Building Society, so my early career was in that organization. That organization was run by someone who was, was extraordinary. His name was Bob Tucker. He brought a style and a value system to that organization, which was about care and compassion and, and a sense of purpose. So this organization was about much more than profit for shareholders. It was actually about contributing to a much wider good. And in South Africa, that was palpably needed. And so the Building Society, this is in the late 80s, before the overthrow of the national government, he was out there providing lending facilities for, for people who are disadvantaged, people who lived in Soweto, enabling and facilitating empowerment of those communities. And so I grew up in that organization uh, that actually had a real sense of value of people of contribution. In those years, we would open up the, the building society or the, the, the business for black people to come in and do adult literacy. So I would go in on a, on a Sunday and I would run adult literacy courses. We would bring people in and train them on computers. So the type of stuff that we did, I mean, every one of our branches had a particular project, whether it was building a borehole or facilitating and engaging with the school or whatever. And it wasn't just giving money to something. Uh, the people in those branches went on a weekend and they would do the work and then engage in that community. You can imagine the, the change, cultural change that actually makes for people when you're all of a sudden working hand in glove with a community that you'd had nothing to do with in the past. So it was a very different type of organization. In the late 1980s, they had those strikes across, across South Africa of big business, trade union strikes of big business. It was a very difficult time uh, when sort of the end of the national era, but before Nelson Mandela had been released, was a very full of unrest time. The only business that was excluded, explicitly extru excluded from the strikes, was the South African Permanent Building Society because of this policy of engagement. So that informs you of something of the ethos that went with the whole way of, of managing it. Some of that went across into the broader group Nedbank, and some of it did It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
You left South Africa and you and your family moved to Australia, which was, of course, Australia's gain. You arrived in Sydney in the mid-1990s and you initially worked for the Commonwealth Bank and then your talent, obvious talent, was noticed and the St George Bank approached you to become their CEO. How did it feel to become the first female CEO of an Australian bank. You just talked about occasionally having doubts when a fork in the road came. Many women talk about imposter syndrome. Did you feel any of that or did you just see this as an opportunity? I was as surprised as anyone else. So, uh, and I really mean that. It's, it's a story that I've told. I, I was surprised to have been appointed. The market was certainly surprised that I was appointed. I was pretty much an unknown Quantity. I'd only been in the country four years with the Commonwealth Bank to running sort of the card business and head of strategic marketing, and then the last two running the big distribution, branch distribution system for the Commonwealth Bank. I really wasn't a known figure at all within, within Australia, but I got approached by Headhunter for the role. And so I thought, gosh, this will be a good learning opportunity for me. You know, it wasn't a difficult decision to go into the running for, for, the, for the job because I thought I'll learn something out of it. It really surprised me when the chairman rang me up and the headhunter rang me up and said, we want to offer you the job. Because I knew that there were a number of other people in the Commonwealth Bank and in the industry more widely who were also going for this particular job. So I said to the organization, well, you need to make this decision. I also need to make a decision. So give me a little while to think about it. And that was one of those times of sitting at home and saying, can I do this job? gosh, all of a sudden, this is now confronting me. Can I do this job? And it was definitely one of the times where Alan said, for goodness sake, back yourself, have a go, give give this a try. Remember at the time, of course, St. George was coming up for its 10 years, post being a building society, 10 years of, of being a bank. And so all of the restrictions that would limit the opportunity to acquire it were going to fall away. So there was a lot of talk in the marketplace that St. George would be acquired. I thought I might have a short career in St. George as the CEO but I decided to back myself. You successfully led the St George Bank to increase its profits by $3 billion and you won the Australian Banking and Finance Magazine's Best Financial Services Executive for two years running. And in 2008, you became CEO of Westpac, which of course is a much bigger bank than St George and is Australia's oldest bank. In that role, you oversaw a merger between Westpac and St George Bank, which meant you were then running a new banking group with 10 million customers, a 25% share of the Australian home loans market, and with $108 billion in investment funds. Was that a pinch yourself moment? How did that feel? How did that come about? And do you see any aspect of gender in your selection or obstacles to your selection? I don't think I saw any obstacles of gender in my selection. Westpac was you know, well recognised for its position and its strategy and its policies and its culture around the development of women in its organisation. So, you know, going back to Bob Joss days, David Morgan and Sherry, Carolyn Hewson, some wonderful people that actually supported the development of that of that culture in Westpac. And, and in fact, headhunters would say to me, if, if, if you're ever going to be a CEO of a major bank, it would have to be Westpac. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that was certainly the, the, the perspective at the time. Ted Evans was the chairman. And I think what Ted and the board wanted, the mandate that they wanted from me at the time, was to transform Westpac around a service orientation and a, 
and a customer orientation uh, to bring some of that flavor and that inherent putting the customer first philosophy, culture, strategy at St. George into, into the Westpac group. So I don't think there was anything gendered in that appointment at all. How did I feel, though? I certainly felt this is a big step up. I was ready for it because of the, the six years that I'd spent at St. George. So I was, I was ready for it. I was up for it. I didn't have one of those moments when I was offered the job of saying, should I take it? Yes, I, this, this is the role I want. This is the role I'm going to take. But immediately after I'd taken the role, of course, the financial crisis hit. And that compounded my learning curve for major banks such as Westpac. And so all of a sudden, I found myself dealing with a financial crisis and all of the rigor and demands that that brought, wanting to, to start and then accelerate the transformation around service culture within the Westpac group. And of course, the opportunity emerged for us to bring upon a merger with, with St. George. And it also meant for you at uh, Westpac setting targets, 40% diversity target, 40% women, and you achieved that two years ahead of time. When you look back on that, what gave that overachievement in terms of getting to the target early? Because many organisations today would set targets and just struggle and struggle to reach them. So, as you know, I'm a very achievement-orientated type of person. So, you know, I like to like to deliver. It's it's part of that conscientious style, really, <laughs> setting myself up and then wanting to to deliver. Background here is an interesting one. So, I mentioned that Westpac was a leader in the space. When I arrived, I thought, tick, that's not something I need to worry about. Particularly because of everything else that I need to worry about: the financial crisis, the merger, bringing new people on board cultural issues, new strategy, implementation, delivery, credit workouts, etc. There's a lot I need to do. Thank goodness I don't need to worry about that because that's inbuilt, it's ingrained in the organization and we're traveling well. Well, I was wrong. I was wrong. So two years in, I found that what had happened is that we not only plateaued, but to some, some respect, we were going a little backwards. We'd lost some of that forward momentum of people coming through the ranks and being developed and being promoted and feeling that this was a truly inclusive organization for all. And people were holding the mirror up to me and saying, are you supporting this? Which was a dreadful thing for me because it was a, it was a really sh a shocking thing for me to have people test me on my support for the agenda or test me on my preparedness to advocate the agenda, bearing in mind where I'd come from in South Africa uh, an area that was you know, far from anything to do with diversity. And I'd always been a massive advocate for diversity across all of its rich forms through my career in South Africa and then into Australia to somehow have the mirror held up to say, oh, are you supporting this agenda? It was a real wake-up call for me. And so I said, right, sit to it. Now we're going to tackle this head-on, develop a strategy and lead it. And so that's what we did in 2009, 2010 came up with that target for 2014 and then and then certainly overachieved it. I had a good starting position, but it really needed an all-in strategy. And an all-in strategy is an all-in strategy. You know, it starts with clarity around what you're trying to achieve, the goals, the targets, the measurements, then you hardwire some things, the policies that need to be looked at and changed, the structures that need to be looked at and changed, like how you recruit, how you develop, how you look to develop pipelines, how you tackle people that are on parental leave and bringing them back into the organization, what you do about superannuation that people are not getting when they're on parental leave. All of those things need to be looked at and hardwired into the organization. 
And then the soft wiring goes to the storytelling and the recognition elements and the role modeling elements and the listening elements, all of that. And then doing the public elements, so standing up and advocating publicly was very much part of this for me as well. So that's really the story there. You left Westpac in 2015 and you released your book, Live, Lead, Learn, My Stories of Life and Leadership in 2017. In the years since you've left banking in Australia, there have been a number of revelations about poor conduct in the banking sector, including money laundering and various other things that I think have shocked and dismayed people. When you look at that, do you think we learned from the global financial crisis as a community? Is too much of that style of leadership that you described of the overbearing leader who doesn't want to hear the bad news still in evidence in the financial sector or is it something else? You, know, you talk about shocked and dismayed. There's no one who's been more, more disheartened and more, and more really gutted, I think, by what's happened than me. I've really found it quite, quite devastating and extremely sad and so I have had to sort of pause to reflect on it, you know, very deeply over over a period of time. I mean, let me just say a few things. I think one, the Australian financial sector came through the financial crisis very well. Australia came through the financial crisis very well. There were lots of reasons for that. Whereas, of course, global banks came through very badly, and and a number of them collapsed. A number of them had to be bailed out in a significant way. A number of them had early on very significant regulatory issues that they had to deal with and fines and, and so on. And Australia came through all of that relatively unscathed. I think the unfortunate element of that is it probably resulted in a little bit of complacency, which is not a good thing. So that, that would be sort of point number one that I would make. The other point is I spoke about purpose earlier, and let me just repeat that again. And I think sort of real learning for me around purpose is organizations, whether you're a bank or anything else for that matter, really need to understand not just what are we doing, but why are we doing it? Why does it matter? What's the purpose of our organization? And financial institutions in particular, the purpose is rich because the financial institutions are so connected to the fabric of the economy in which you operate, the communities in which you operate on. You, you just touch the lives of people in very, very deep ways. And so the purpose is rich and the purpose is clear. But if you have as your purpose acting in the best interests of, of customers, which is inherently critical, I think, for a commercial organization that is a financial institution, then everything needs to align behind that. Everything needs to align behind that. So the strategy needs to support that. The policies that you have, the structures that you have, the pricing decisions that you make, the, the processes that you have, the way in which you deal with, with customer complaints, the way in which you deal with with disadvantage, the way in which you deal with customers that are struggling. Everything needs to line up behind that. The types of people that you employ, the values that you bring. You want to make sure the old definition of culture is what happens when no one's looking. So you want to make sure that when no one's looking across your organization of 40,000 people, everyone is doing the best that they can to support that customer and listening for that customer and walking in the shoes of that customer. It means taking a long-term view. The issues that we saw emerge in the Royal Commission reflected misalignment. Now, of course, the Royal Commission was looking at examples of misalignment. It was looking at examples of failure. One of the things that's so saddened me about this is that there are, I think it's something like 150,000 people in the industry, financial industry, in Australia, 
And the vast, vast majority of the people in the financial industry in Australia are every day waking up trying to do the very best job they can for customers. And so I felt very, very sad for them too, because it's quite hard to have the reputation of being so systematically um, undermined. So I think there's, there's big learnings. And I think the banks are on a path, but it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to rebuild, regain trust in financial institutions. Earnestly, and, and I look at the leadership and I see the steps that are being made. And I, I'm hoping and I think that the, the, the way in which the banks are tackling the COVID crisis is evidence of a really positive, engaged, constructive, supportive, looking after the vulnerable, looking after people who most need help approach. And also, of course, the way the banks have dealt with things such as bushfires and other natural disasters is real testimony to the underlying culture that actually lies within them. I'm going to take us to our concluding questions. I always ask my guests about a fact. Your fact is, according to Catalyst, in 2018, women represented just over a third of all managers in Australia. And when you break that figure down, you find the higher the level you go, the less women. So it's only around 17% of CEOs and heads of business are women. Your reaction? Well, my reaction is it shows that we have a long way to go and a lot more work to do. And I, I saw some comments from uh, our head of the Chief Executive Women's Group suggesting that in certain categories, we've actually not just flatlined but gone slightly backwards over the last few years. So maybe it sort of resonates again with what I said about banking. We've maybe become a little complacent here and plateaued and as a, we need fresh energy, we need fresh drive on this particular agenda. I mean, I remember when around the time you became Prime Minister, in the next few years, there was a very, very big push that delivered results. If you recall, the ASX requirements for disclosure that were very important at the time, some remarkable women sort of leading the charge, whether it was... Um, Liz Broderick and uh, Belinda Hutchinson and uh, the, the CEW as an organization, obviously Quentin Bryce, you know, yourself, Marie Bashir, some remarkable people actually holding the, the, the flag up and, and talking about this agenda. Corporates taking it on board and setting themselves targets and setting themselves goals and reporting on those, on those goals. So we made progress, actually. But since then, it seems to have plateaued and fallen away a little. So and I hope in the light of you know, COVID, we don't say, oh, we're visiting other things, because it's really important to put energy and drive behind it. And just as I described the way in which you tackle a strategy in Westpac, this is the way we need to tackle it across all organizations of clarity of strategy, clarity of measurements and goals, and then systematically hardwiring and softwiring the organization behind it. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? You know, I, I think I would say the examples where there's ingrained bias or ingrained discrimination. Uh, the, the best example would probably be when I started in, in Westpac because I just didn't meet the inherent mental model that many of the market and, and many of the market here, we're talking about analysts and fund managers and global players and other bank CEOs, they are men. And so the mental model that they would have of who is appointed to be the CEO of a major bank, and I, and I obviously failed that first test, which meant that immediately there's going to be a level of, okay, well, watch and see, as opposed to just accept that you, are, you have the, the capabilities, the credibility, 
and are the right person for the job. So you, I was aware of that kind of, okay, watch and see. The other way in which I didn't meet the mental model is because the style of leadership that I brought is inherently different. Now, I think the style that I bring to leadership is an advantage. The difference is an advantage. And I saw that in St. George, the, the more connectedness, the more human touch element, the more happy to talk about all elements of my life and my family and bring it all to work, the more grounded down to earth, people stopping me in the streets and in the airports and everywhere and engaging with me. I think that's an inherent strength in a leadership style. If you were all powerful just for a day and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? If we go to education, Julia, it would go to equal access to education for girls and for women. And in fact, if I could really change anything, it would be for all people. I would wish all people to have universal access to quality education, young men and young women. But if we're talking specifically about women and girls, please, equal access to education. You know, one of the roles I have is Ambassador for Women's Empowerment for Care Australia. And so I've had the, the privilege of visiting CARE's operations in places like Vanuatu and Cambodia and Myanmar and seeing firsthand the multiply of girls' education. And you would know this, obviously, from all of your work as well. If you can educate a girl, the, the impact into the community, the impact on her family, the impact for her children, is manifest and massive. So if I could wave a magic wand, it would be education for girls and for women and equal access to men. But ultimately, I'd love, I think there's something like 770 million illiterate people in the world. And two thirds of them are women. Two thirds of them are women. Wow. Can you imagine what we can do if we can turn that education element on? What a difference it would make in so many dimensions. Absolutely. Virginia Woolf says, to depend upon a profession is a less odious form of slavery than to depend upon a father. Gail Kelly says, I said, be brave, be resilient, be kind, and follow your own compass. A fantastic answer. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much, Julia. It's been a delight. Thank you. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 